Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 17. As we uh, continue to work our way through the Psalms, I'm reminded of one of the exciting things about uh, studying Hebrew poetry is that, um, I don't know if you're uh, someone who really likes the arts, but there are things that we can see, sculptures that people sculpt or paintings that people paint. To me, uh, a poet is someone who paints with words. And sometimes in that mindset, in a, that'd be what we'd call a, a Greek model, we can miss out on the beauty of Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, they paint with thought. It's the thoughts that are linked. Uh, Where we would see the choice of the words or the type of words that are used when we look at it. Um, The psalmist, he does it with the thoughts, the pictures he's painting, the examples he lays out for us. And Psalm 17 is a psalm of lament. Remember when we talked about psalms of lament, there's psalms that ask why or how or or, uh, or call out to God, have questions for the Lord. But Psalm 17 is one of five psalms in the scriptures that is laid out for us as a prayer. The key uh, for this particular lament of the psalms of David is this prayer that he does. And as we look at it, it kind of provides for us a, um, I don't know, a, a unique uh, a model or concept that he lays out as he uh, opens up his heart for you and I. It's just like, I don't know if you get it, but it's like David taking an intimate prayer of his and then writing it out in poetic form and then presenting it to the body of Israel to utilize in their worship. That's kind of a wild concept. Because if you've ever had a very personal, intimate time with the Lord, we're not often willing to open up our hearts and let someone peer into what was happening in us when God spoke or when we were calling upon Him. But that is exactly what what David is doing in Psalm 17. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry and give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. His, his call for the Lord, hear this just cause. He's asking God to examine an issue in his life. He's saying, Lord, examine this. From David's point of view, it's a just cause, and it is a prayer not from deceitful lips. But the invitation is for God to look at it, right? Hear my just cause. Look at this. Look at this this area in my life or this struggle that I'm going through. And then in verse 2, he calls out for vindication. Now, for most of us, we want this. In fact... If we look in Scripture carefully, we'll see over and over again where people wanted vindication. For example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She wanted vindication, right? How many years did people call her a a slut? Someone who had been unfaithful on her husband, and she's just lucky her husband stayed with her. If we don't think that that's accurate, your, your mind is not in the reality of Scripture. She was betrothed to a man and showed up pregnant. Six months pregnant before they were married. Everybody could see. 
In fact, they would have stoned her if not for her husband. And there comes a time in, in Mary's life when Jesus is, is 30 years old and, and, and Joseph's gone. And she looks at Jesus and she says, now is the time. Vindicate me. It happens in the first miracle. The wedding in Cana, remember? And Jesus says to her, Gone, what have I to do with you, woman? It's not my time. She wanted vindication. Prove to everybody you're the Messiah. Do this miracle. Jesus did the miracle, but nobody knew about it, right? Six servants or so who filled up some water pots. It wasn't the time for vindication. David here in his prayer is calling out to, look, examine my cause, examine what's gone on in my life, and I'm looking for vindication. God, I want you to, to vindicate me so that, so that all this can be over. Now, the interesting thing in looking at Psalm 17 alongside Psalm 18, which we're going to do tonight, Psalm 18 describes the, the pinnacle or the end of his 10 years of fleeing from Saul. Psalm 17 would remind me of the prayer he would have prayed a hundred times in 10 years from inside a cave asking that God would vindicate him. The day would come, but it, but it was going to be on God's time. He says, let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. Again, a call, examine, look, see, look into this issue. Then in verse 3, as he's talking about this idea of examining, he calls for this examination. You, Lord God, have tested my heart. And you have visited me in the night. And you have tried me and have found nothing. So I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. So first he says, Lord, you have tested, you have visited, and you have tried. Three things that that God had done for him. He had tested his heart. When did that occur? Remember when when Samuel was anointing all his brothers and he anoints the the firstborn? He says, surely this is the one. You remember what God said to, to Samuel? He said, man judges by the outside, but God judges how? By the heart. And God saw David's heart when he was yet unproved. And he recognized that in David's heart there was a heart beating or heart after God's. One who, who wanted the desires that God wanted. The same things that God wanted. So you've tested my heart. You visited me in the night. What was that? Oh, come on. You guys have all had that, haven't you? You know, you're laying down, just about ready to fall asleep, and then, bloop, eyes pop open. Can't sleep. Thoughts come into your mind, an issue, a struggle, a problem, or whatever. David says, you visited me in the night. In other words, when that occurs to you, when you have those moments, when you're stressed out or anxious and it wakes you up, is God aware? What the psalmist is saying, what he's painting for us in his thoughts, is that while that may not be your presence with me in that place, you're you're there. You know about it. You know my heart. You know my thoughts. In fact, he's going to tell us about that, right? That God knows his thoughts before he thinks them. It's kind of a 
an incredible concept to wrap your mind around. You visited me in the night and you tried me and have found nothing. David is saying, look, examine my life. Is there anything in my life that gives Saul cause to chase me for 10 years? Look, he's not saying I'm sinless and I'm perfect. He's saying, I, 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 it's not, I've done nothing to Saul. Was that true? Was David trying to usurp Saul's authority? Was he trying to take the kingdom? Was he trying to work behind the scenes and, and wiggle his way in to get more prominence or power? No. So, I've been tried. I haven't done anything to Saul. Why is it that I'm living in the caves? Why am I going through a struggle? This is why it is a psalm of lament and a prayer. And if we're honest, all of us have asked that same question. Why is this happening? I didn't do anything. I didn't make this choice. I didn't make this decision that brought me to this place. And that's what the psalmist is calling out. He's asking for God's God to examine. But in the midst, this is important, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of trying to, to, to uh, grapple with the concepts of why I'm frustrated with my circumstances, I'm living in a cave for 10 years. I, I don't know where you guys are living, but it's better than a cave. So I'm living in a cave. Ten years is a long time, sleeping in the dirt. I'm living in a cave, but then he says right at the end of verse 3, but I have purpose that my mouth will not, shall not transgress. Daniel says a similar phrase. Daniel says, I have purpose in my heart that I would not be defiled with the king's delicacies. He purposed in his heart to make his life an example of following God in the details, in the little things. Here, David says, I purpose in my, in my heart, I'm not going to sin with my mouth. Now, specifically, what's the concept he's talking about? I'm frustrated in my circumstances. I'm struggling in this 10 years of difficulty and the way people look at me. God, everybody looks at me like I'm some criminal. I didn't do nothing to Saul. You see the same concept, right, with Mary. I didn't do the things people have been talking about that I did. I gave birth to the Christ. So the, the, the call for vindication and examination. But David says, and Mary did the same thing, I will not sin with my mouth. Job said the same thing, I won't charge God with wrong. We don't always understand, but does that mean it's wrong? Everything that enters into our life and, I, and I'll, I'll probably say this 10,000 times that we're working our way through Psalms because there's a, 150 times that probably that's going to come up. But the idea is we are most concerned with destination. What was David concerned with? I was anointed when I was a, a child, a young man, to be king. So when am I going to be king? When am I going to be king? You guys have all been on trips with your kids, haven't you? You're on a long trip with your kid. How many times do they say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I know you think you don't do it anymore, but you do it to God all the time. God, what's going on? I thought I was going to be here. I'm going to be back here. We're concerned with destination. God's concerned with the journey. 
We're concerned with our arrival. God's not worried about our arrival. What God is worried about is the character that needs to be developed in the lives of His people between the call and the the time when you arrive. And that's what God is doing in the life of David. That's why David says, I'm not going to sin with my mouth. I'm not going to charge God with wrong. I'm not going to... Sometimes people would say to you, you know... Tell God how you feel. He already knows. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Except, except some people forget the concept of I'm not going to sin with my mouth. Just don't forget that the God you're telling how you feel is the creator of the universe who died for you and is deserving of your respect. And it, you shouldn't be so familiar with God that you speak to Him in a way you wouldn't speak to your mom or your dad or your boss but that you would speak to him in a better way, with a better attitude. So, anyways, this is what he's calling to. Look, he says, I have purpose in my mouth. I will not transgress. So concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. So I have purpose in my mouth. I'm not going to sin with my mouth. And the, concerning the works of men... By the word of your lips, what your word has declared, I kept my, myself away from the path of the destroyer. You know, there's a way that we walk that leads to destruction. Right? Do, do we know that? There's a path you take that leads down a road that you know full well what's at the end of that road, and sometimes we take that road anyway. David is saying, not only have I purpose not to sin with my, with my lips or with my mouth, but I'm also going to stay on the path God wants me to stay on. Now, how can we know what the path is that God wants us to stay on? What's right here? Read Psalm 119. The whole psalm is all about the Word of God. And what does it tell us in Psalm 119? Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. What is that talking about? It's, remember, poetry of thought. The Word of God is a headlight that directs us, that shows us the way to go. Our attitudes that we ought to have. So he's saying, I'm I'm going to stay on your path. How am I going to stay on your path? I'm going to know your word. I'm going to apply your word to my life. I'm going to let your word be my guide. One of the greatest things any believer could ever do is spend their life reading God's word. I don't know how many times Kathy's been through the whole thing, but she... Is, has been super faithful with the one year Bible. She reads it every single morning. And she's been doing that. We've been here almost six years. So she's been doing that that whole time. And long before we came to Idaho. So I have no idea how many times she's been completely through the entire Word of God. But pouring the seed of the Word of God into your life is going to help guide and direct you not on the path of destruction, but on the path of light. Or, hey, we can keep trying to just figure it out as we go. And if that's working for you, right on, knock yourself out. But most of the time, we're struggling and we keep wondering, why do I keep ending up in the same place? Because you are still doing the same things. What's the definition of insanity? Do the same thing over and over again and expect what? Different results. Is there anything different going to happen? No. Why do people 
get married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. And you look back over their marriages and you see they pick the same person every time. Why? Because they're doing the same thing, expecting something different to happen. Look, nothing different's ever going to happen. You got to change what you're doing. And the greatest way to change what you're doing is to know where you're going. And how am I going to know where I'm going? I'm going to read the Word of God. It's not some great mystery. I'm going to pour the seed in. Jesus told a story. Remember the sower went out to sow seed? What was the seed? The Word of God. What was the soil? The hearts of men. Sow the seed in the heart. In your very heart, you will have, at one time or another, all four of those soils, won't you? Isn't there times in your life when you're so worried about other things that you, that you allow those worries and concerns to choke out the fruitfulness of the Word? Are there times in your life when your heart is hard and it won't receive what God's Word is laying out for us? Yep, and are there times where the soil is ready to receive? Absolutely. So not only does it show four people, four different hearts, and the one that will receive God's Word, but it also shows the condition of your heart on any given day. And if you don't prepare the soil of your heart, then your heart is not going to receive the Word for that day. I could, If I got a nickel for every time somebody told me, I try to read God's Word and I can't understand it. I'll be the richest man on earth. If I come to any book and I say, I don't, I can't, I do not want to do this. What have, what have I allowed in my heart? Is my heart prepared to receive the seed? Well, how does it work for you guys? If you, if you go to work every day and you go, man, I hate my job. I hate this, I hate this job, I hate this job, I hate this job. And you get to work, I hate this job, and how's, the, how's your day? Yeah, well, if you're a cop, you get to do that. <laughs> I think he takes it out on me, man. I can't seem to get through you without getting pulled over anymore. <clears throat> Does our attitude affect the, our ability to receive? I'm not just talking about the Word of God. In everything in life. If, if, if Kathy's telling me, Jackie, we're going to go visit my mom. And I go, oh, oh, oh. Oh, I gotta go visit. I'm gonna go see cat. And I do that the whole way there. I'm not a pleasant guy to be around. Nobody wants to talk to me. And then afterwards I go, you know, Kathy, your family's not very nice to me. And she rolls her eyes at me. Oh yeah, that's what it is, you know. Doesn't have nothing to do with your lousy attitude. Am I right or wrong? So if we want the Word of God and what God's Word has laid out for us to sink in, and we got to come to it like a hungry man goes to dinner. What do you got for me today, God? It's every single book, every single word brings fruit. But that's how you go. That's what made David a man after God's own heart, tested, visited, and tried. He purposed in his heart not to sin with his mouth, to walk according to God's word on the path that God had called him to walk down. And then he says, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. Where does our stability come from? Our stability comes from the Lord. Uphold me. There is this concept that I think 
a way that I think God works in our life. You see, he expects us to make a decision of will. And then he meets us right on the other side of that decision. And until we'll make that decision of will, he's just waiting. We make that decision of will. I, I will. I'm, I will seek you. I will call upon your name. I need you to guide me. Those are the places where God meets us. But most of the time we're on the other side of that decision of will. And we're complaining about what God's not doing in our life. But remember, I told you, God's less concerned with your destination and more concerned with your travel plans to get there. And he'll take all the time it takes with David 10 years living in a cave. 10 years in a cave. No running water. No heater. No air conditioner. David over and over again said, How long? How long? How long? And God probably was saying to David, That depends on you. That depends on... On, on where you're at with me and what you're doing with me. So David is recognizing his stability comes from God. He's been obedient to God's word. He's made choices, decisions of will to say, I'm not going to sing with my mouth. I'm going to follow your path and your direction. And that's where God's going to meet him and provide him stability. Then in verse 6, he goes, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Whenever David calls on the Lord, he, he has this idea. I have called on you because you will hear me. Is that the way, are your prayers expectant? I'm not saying to, I'm, I'm not a, a fan of name it and claim it. And you're not God and you don't get to make the call for him. But... Do you go to God with the expectancy that He's listening? Because God hears you. He sees your struggles. He knows the things. He loves you anyway. This is the beauty of it all. That He loves you in your struggles. And He loves you though you have have a, a crisis of faith now and again. And He loves you through all those things. He, and he's, he, he wants to meet you in that place. So David says, man, I call because you hear me. Your, your ear, incline your ear to me and hear my speech and show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. In this part of his prayer, it's almost an, an appeal to the love of God. The appeal that he uses the phrase, the, the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, every time we see the word loving kindness in the New King James or King James, it's the word chesed, which is a very close relative to the word agape, the self-sacrificing love of God. And so he calls out to him, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. The right hand is the hand in which God saves. So show me with the hand that saves. And, and what specifically is he, is he looking for? That God's going to be there for him because he trusts in him. I trust in you. I trust in you. This this prayer could have been uttered in year one of ten years. Could have been uttered every day for ten years. And all the while, he says to the Lord, You will save those who trust in you. So I trust in you. You get how that works? 
We want to flip it the other way. Lord, when you save me from this, I'll trust in you. (laughs) And God just smiles and says, I got more patience than you have rebellious attitude. So I will wait for you to say, I trust you. So you will save me. Because God will. He will. Sometimes exactly like you want him to. Sometimes it won't look anything like you want it to. But the key is faith. Is there any way to please God without, without faith? Is God ever well pleased with us without faith? The scripture declares that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we got to come to that decision over and over and over again. Just like David, over and over again. I trust, I trust, I trust, I trust. I put my trust in you. You will save. You save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. You save us from the hand of the wicked man. Then listen to this phrase, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. In, in Hebrew, this is what it really says. We, translators call it the apple of the eye, so you get it. But in Hebrew... It's the little man in the eye. They say the little man in the eye because when you look in someone's eye, you can see a reflection of you in their eye. And that twinkle, or what we call the apple of someone's eye, is what they call the little man in the eye. I'm the, I'm the, Keep me as the little man in the eye. It means that God's looking at him, that God sees him, that God is intent on him, right? He's not, God's not looking over here or looking over there. He couldn't be the little man in his eye. But that, that God is intent on him. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me and from the deadly enemies who surround me. Now Jesus, when he was on the southern steps, um, headed toward the cross, he, he speaks of Israel. How often have I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. You remember what he said next? You were not willing. Here David in his prayer is saying, man, gather me. Now, think about the concept, a hen gathering chicks. How many of them chicks want to be under mama hen? You think that, you honestly think that they're like, oh, this is so nice. Really, okay, Gather your children under Mama Hen. How's that work? Oh, perfectly, right? Oh, they never want to get out from under Mama? They never want to run out into the crazy parts of the yard and play with things they shouldn't be playing with and do stuff that they don't want to do? Sure they do. So what was required was a, an act of will. Where was the act of will? It was on David's part. Gather me. I want to be covered by your wings. I want to be close to you. I want you to be central in my life. That all things revolve around you, just like they revolve around a mother hen with her chicks. And then in verse 10, he says, They have closed up their fat hearts. Wow. He's going to talk about the oppressors now. People who are oppressing him. Or, uh, for lack of a better term, people... In the world whose treasure is not God. Their treasure is their treasure. That's what he's, how he's going to describe them. So they, they've closed their fat hearts. They've got everything they want in their hearts. With their mouth they speak proudly. 
they have now surrounded us in our steps, and they have set their eyes crouching down to the earth, like a lion is eager to tear his prey, and a young lion lurking in secret places. Now what does that remind you of? What Peter said? For our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The idea that those whose treasure is the world and the things of the world are following the example of their father. Jesus, when he talked to the scribes and the Pharisees, says, you're just a liar like your father. He was the father of lies, a liar from the beginning and a murderer. And you're just like him. They begin to take on the attributes of the God they serve. So who's the God you serve? Is it the devil? Is it yourself? Or is it Jesus Christ? And if it is, we take on the attributes of the God we serve. Of the God we say we serve. The one we really serve. So he says, Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life uh, from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord. From men of the world who have their portion in this life. He's defining who these men are. Who are they? Those whose portion is this life. All the gold I can gather, all the riches I can have, all the fame and the fortune and the power and everything that goes with it. That's what they're seeking. That's why their hearts are fat and they're closed off to God. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and who? Mammon. What was mammon? Money. Money. So, not that you can't have money, you just can't serve it. You either serve God... Or you serve money. In this case, these guys, they're defined uh, by this desire for this treasure. Defining men of the world whose belly, listen to this, you fill with your hidden treasure. Oh, did God fill their hearts? Did God fill their hearts with money and gold and, and every precious gem? Sure. Well, who's it belong to? They just love his gifts and they don't love him. You get it? God, you filled their heart with hidden treasure. All that treasure belongs to who? It belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the world belongs to him. So whatever riches they have, it's all something that's been given to them by God. And they choose to receive the treasures and put their hope and, and faith in the treasure rather than in the gift giver. So they're... they're Closing their eyes. This is the definition of the, the worldly man who David is asking for deliverance of. Uh, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. So they have all this earthly treasure and their big hope is to pass it on to their kids. Is that the most important thing you can give your kids? Most important thing is that they have an easy life. And that they won't have to struggle. But, but what developed the character in you? I try to remind myself that, you know, we, we always say things, I don't want my kids to struggle like we did. Well, how did you become who you are? Well, by the struggle. So you want to deny that to your children. No struggle for you. 
And how's that going to turn out? Not so good. Not so good. I get it. I want to do it too. I want to spare my kids from every dumb decision they could make. I want to keep them off of the road to destruction. And I might get in the way of what God needs to do in their lives so that they can have the relationship they need to have with Him. My kids don't have to worry about me leaving them nothing. I'm a preacher. I ain't leaving a thing. What do I got? You think I got stuff? You're welcome to come check it out. I got a boat that goes backwards. And I'm thankful for my boat that goes backwards. The idea is to remember what Abraham gave to Ishmael. He loved Ishmael with all his heart. And he gave him a glass of water. And what did Ishmael learn? That God is the God who sees. And God made a mighty nation out of Ishmael. And gave him a line, uh, 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 a, a, what's the word? I lost it. Anyways, he gave him everything he needed. Everything his parents ever hoped he could have. But it came through the relationship with God, not because of what parents were able to dictate or to define or to decide. Hey, we want to be wise. I'm not saying we want to be stupid. But sometimes we can be in the way. Because listen to what the psalmist says. The main thing, most important thing that anybody can have. The men of the world, they want all these other things. He says in verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness and be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That's what they need. They have a good job. Great. I hope they do. They have... All the things they long for, hey, that'd be super. But if they don't have a relationship with Christ and a desire to see His face and righteousness and to wake up in the likeness of Him, then I failed as a dad. That's the goal. If they never have a PhD, they never go to college, and they never have a great job, they work blue collar their whole life slicing fish up filleting fish over in the fish factory and they know Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior and want to be like him I have succeeded as a father the American dream is not God's dream that needs to be our goal and that ultimately is what we can see in David's prayer He moves on now in Psalm 18. Wait, wait, let me wave my hand. David's king now. He's out of the cave, he's in the palace. Everything is good. The lament of the prayer in 17 is finished. And we come to the royal psalm in Psalm 18. On the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said... I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Now, I want you to, I want you to kind of put on your thinking caps a little bit and, and start to draw some correlations here. Look, he says, I love you, Lord. Now, first off, that word love is a very uncommon word used in Hebrew. It is typically used 
from the position of the greater to the lesser. And almost always used from God to men. But in this case, David says it to the Lord. Because he wants to respond in love to God the same way God loves him. Well, wasn't that, isn't that our goal? Wasn't that the goal when we see Jesus talk to Peter in, in uh, John twenty twenty one, When he says, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Peter, do you agape me? Peter responds, no, I'm not there yet. I phileo. Right? Three times. The goal was to get to agape, which was the point behind God telling Peter that one day you're going to get there. One day you're going to sacrifice yourself for me. He's going to arrive. God's not so worried about the destination. What's he concerned with? The journey to get you there. How am I going to get you there, Peter? This is how I'm going to get you there. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Take care of my people. That'll get you there. And so that's how God is developing that. David, after 10 years of living in a cave, the first words he wants to say, Man, I love you, Lord. I love you. And then he says, Oh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Remember, that's always the proper name of God. Impronounceable name in, in Hebrew, Yahweh. All I'm saying is the Hebrew letters. Y-H-V-H. From that, we'd say God's name's Jehovah. Well, there's no J in Hebrew, so it can't be Jehovah, but it can be Yehovah, or it can be Yahweh. Uh, all we do is, it's, it's different vowels that we substitute in between those consonants to get those sounds. But that's the word, capital L-O-R-D. That means it's the proper name of God. They're using God's proper name, O Lord, my strength. So they're talking about Almighty God, right? Everybody with me? All the, the Lord, Almighty God is my strength. Then what's the next phrase in verse 2? Capital L-O-R-D, the Lord is what? My rock. So Almighty God, Jehovah Yahweh, He's the rock. What's it say in Corinthians? Who's the rock in Corinthians? Jesus Christ is the rock. You know that same phrase, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord is my shepherd. Just turn a couple of pages, see it in Psalm 23. We all know the Lord is my shepherd, right? We have heard it before. Capital L-O-R-D, right? Almighty God, Yahweh, Yehovah is my shepherd. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good. He even used that word, shepherd. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher. You remember what Jesus said to him? Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. And then he used that same phrase in John 10. I am the good. There's none good but who? God. And who is my shepherd? The Lord. Capital L. You don't think the Jews knew who the shepherd was? Do you know? How how, how familiar are you with Psalm 23? Uh, That's not a new development. The Lord is my rock. He's gonna, he's gonna come up with several metaphors here. I just want you to see them all. But, but they can all be related to Jesus Christ and speak to His divinity. But it also speaks to the character of God. And that character of God and the God we serve ought to be characteristics that come through us. Look what it says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, the one in whom I will trust. 
my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. Man, that's a lot of metaphors. Descriptive words used to describe what God or who God was to David. And so he, he lays them all out for us. He says, my rock, literally my cliff, the rock that we have a song, we sing a, a, um, a hymn, right? Rock of ages. What's the next phrase? Cleft for me. Why do we sing about that? God hid Moses in the rock. That's a good, that's a good example. God hid Moses in the rock. Same kind of an idea. Hide me in the rock. What else happened to the rock? Moses struck the rock with a rod and what happened? Water came for what kind of water? It's moving water, so they called that something special. Living water. Living water came out of the rock. What did it come out? Just the, the flat face? No, when he struck the rock, there was a cleft. And living water came from the cleft. The cleft in the rock where Moses could hide. The cleft in the rock where we can find protection surrounding us. The cleft in the rock from which living water springs. That's why in, in Corinthians, Paul says, the rock is Jesus. The rock that followed Moses. The rock that David sings about. That's Jesus. This is the, the cliff, the, the, the rock of protection. Then he talks about my, my fortress. The fortress, <laughs> the fortress was the cave of Adullam. When David sings about the fortress, you don't think he's talking about the palace. Oh Lord, now finally you're here for me? What was his protection from Saul? The cave of Adullam. The, the cave in Engedi where he hid. Where, where God protected him. He calls him my deliverer. Or literally, my Savior, the one who is mighty to save. He, he calls Him my God. Uh, literally meaning or pointing to the fact that every single good thing ever that I could ever imagine, that's who you are. Every good thing. You are every good thing. Then that second, the, the, right after my God, it says my strength. Some of you, if you have NIV or NASB or ESV, that'll say my rock for the second time. It's a different word. Uh, but that's what it says. It literally says my rock. But the idea of this word for rock is a rock of strength, firm and immovable. So the idea that, that it's that is a picture. The idea is the idea of strength. But the word is a word for rock. It's my, my strength, my rock, my immovable rock. In whom I trust, the one in whom I place my faith. My shield, that speaks of his protection. And the horn of my salvation, that means that God is the power to save him. That God is the, is the power of salvation. Uh, uh, literally, in Hebrew, I like the, I like the literal Hebrew, it's, it means the mighty champion that saves me. The horn of my salvation. The mighty champion who saves me. And then he says, uh, my stronghold, my miskar, my high tower, high place. The place where God has me in the palm of His hand. So he's just praising God for all that He is to him. He says, I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. So calling on the Lord, the, the idea of, of calling on the Lord 
and is is that from that place from which salvation comes. Call on him, he saves me. Is that how do you get saved today? Is there another way? Your baptism saved you? you? Called on the Lord, he saved you. It's the same thing. Call on the Lord and it saved you. Then he then he gives a description of his distress. Yeah, the, where he's come from. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. David names his enemies. Now, oftentimes when we look at David talking about his enemies, we only think of the human enemies. But what is it that, that Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6? You do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but what? Principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness, right? What's he talking about? There, there's a spiritual reality behind enemies. The two enemies that David talks about here, he names. He calls them death and perdition. Death and destruction. That's his enemies. Sheol, the sorrows of Sheol, that's the grave. The sorrow over death. Anybody have been sorry somebody died? Struggled with the sorrows of death, having to say goodbye to somebody? That's who David's talking about. The enemy was was death. The enemy is destruction. The snares and the pressures of that all around him and the pressures that he feels. These are the enemies he's asking for God's deliverance from. And when God saves, who's he save us from? Death, where is thy sting? We sang about that tonight, didn't we? The idea is death has no victory over us. Is there? Does death have victory over a believer? All death does is usher you in the presence of God. That's... that's a, not much of a victory. So, he sets us free from those enemies. This is what the psalmist is declaring. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D again, right? Proper name of God. And I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. So he's describing. First, he praises man. Oh, thank you, God. These are all the things you are to me. Then he talks about his distress. For ten years, living in the caves. What he was afraid of was death and destruction. Saul, he never calls Saul his enemy. Do you know that? He never calls him his enemy. Our enemy is not the person who bugs us or the pain in our backside or the neighbor who won't stop or the guy who ruins our day at work. That's not the enemy. You have a real enemy, and it's not ever going to be flesh and blood. It will be principalities and powers. Rulers of the darkness. He describes it for us in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is what happens. He prays his prayer. He prays it out, and then it says, God begins to move. Look, the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills were quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Now, this is all poetic language for the concept that God's starting to move. Over and over for ten years, he prayed, God, do something, God, do something, God, do something, God, do something, God, do something. But eventually, God did something. And the way he describes it is like the whole earth shaking. You know, nothing happens to you that doesn't affect everyone else on the globe. That you are not in some way some separated or isolated individual that, that God works in your life and it doesn't affect the person next to you and next to them and next to them all the way around the world. We're all connected. And so when God moves, 
He's moving the whole earth. When God does something in your life, He's moving the whole earth to do it. How many lives are affected when, when God moves in your life? Hundreds? And, and their lives affect how many others? Hundreds? And their lives affect how many others? It just keeps going, right? And so the idea, the concept, speaking of the whole earth uh, moving and shaking. He says, smoke went up from his nostrils. Now, this doesn't mean God has nostrils. This is called an anthropomorphism. What? Uh, anthropomorphism. What does that mean? It means a poetic way to describe God. God is spirit. He doesn't have a face. But we talk about the face of God. Because we want to be able to relate to God, so we use human terms to relate to Him. God is spirit. He's invisible. Has anyone seen God at any time? That's not what the Bible says. No man has seen God at any time, right? The only way we've ever seen God is if you looked into the face of Jesus. Then you can see God. So when it talks, his, his smoke coming out of his nostrils, it's a descriptive term. It's an idiom. What's the example that he's saying? Well, the organ of anger, when, when they poetically would talk in, in Hebrew poetry about someone being angry, they would talk about them flaring their nostrils. So that's how he does it. Smoke coming out of his nostrils. God's angry. He's angry about what's going on. And it's, and it's about to, he's about to put a stop to it. The devouring fire came from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. Do you know the scriptures describe uh, the cherubim as bearers of the chariot throne on which God rides to judgment? I didn't know that. I discovered that as I was studying this and I said, he rode a cherub? When in the world did cherubs ever get ridden? Oh, now you know. Ezekiel. They, they draw the chariot of God. They also guard the, the, um, the, the tree of life. They also are always around the throne of God. Uh, and they also guarded the entrance into, um, the, the Garden of Eden. So several times that we see them, they're also on the mercy seat. So he rides on the cherub, flew, uh, upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place, and canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And from the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven. Now, poetically, he's saying, God speaks. But God speaks would be boring. So, And it didn't fit in his song and the idea of his poetry. So he's... he's painting this picture of how when God moves, it affects the whole earth. And there's great power and great majesty that God has. Now when he speaks of God speaking, it's thundering from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and he scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, uh, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. I always am blown away when when God does that. Well, what's the channels of the sea? Current, right? You know that in the ocean there are current. There's like rivers that flow in the ocean. Right? We, the ships get in them. That's how they travel. They get in the channels of the sea. Well, that's not a great mystery, right? Except for the Hebrew people live in the desert. Not an ocean. They're not seafaring people. How did David know to write the channels of the sea? 
Because the scripture is God-breathed. And so God inspires David to write about the channels of the sea, poetically, the channels of the sea, like little pathways through the ocean, and they're really there. Mind-boggling. So they, they, they pass through the channels of the sea. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So he sent from above, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. So I want you to get the picture, the poetic picture. So David's talking about his praise, and then he lays out his distress. And the picture he's trying to paint, verbally, the picture he's trying to paint is, I'm I'm drowning in an ocean, and the enemies are all around me, and I'm going to perish. Death and destruction, perdition are here, and, and I'm asking for God's deliverance. And I, and he's praying, and he's going through the storm, and all this craziness is happening. And God begins to move, and he reaches down, and he pulls him out. And he makes him king. That's the picture he's painting. The deliverance of David from all the years, like being saved from drowning. He says, you, you sent from above, you took me, you drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. So David never tried to exalt himself. He always waited for God. David had probably one of the mightiest armies. He probably could have whooped Saul. Probably could have. But he didn't go to war. Why not? Because Saul was not his enemy. And he wouldn't take the throne before God gave it to him. God will give me the throne. I won't take it. So the Lord was his support. He also brought me out into a broad place. Uh, He delivered me because he delighted in me. He brought me out into a broad place. I want you to get it. Uh, the idea in the language is my, I'm all hemmed in. Uh, it's all crowded. I, I don't know where to go. I, I can only go one place. I can only follow one direction. Everything is crowded. I, I got this narrow path. But then the Lord picked me up and he put me on a broad path. The idea is my, there was all this struggle and all this hardship and all these things for 10 years. But now God's put me in the broad place. It's, it's easy. My road's easy now. God prepared me. And why did God do this for me? Simply because He delighted in me. That's grace. Don't you see that's grace? What was in David? Don't go thinking that David was some special miracle man who didn't have sin. We read about his sin, right? Did David have a lust problem? Yeah. So it wasn't that he was sinful sinlessly perfect it was god's grace god had grace on david he delighted in him and 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 the word that he uses for delight is like a parent delighting in his children you know you can have the most rotten kids on earth and still love them right am i crazy well i got a couple look it doesn't matter what my kids do It will never matter what they do. They could do horrible, horrible things in society. You cannot stop a parent from delighting and loving his kids. I don't love what they did. Maybe I don't, I don't, I don't love the choices that they made, 
But that's always my little baby boy. I held him when he weighed nothing. He fell asleep on my chest. Yeah, I'm sorry. I delight in him. And that's the same word God uses. Why does he use that phrase, that concept? Because he wants to get you. Well, what is it that Jesus said that blew everybody's mind in the New Testament? When they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. What did Jesus say? Well, pray like this. Our what? Father. What does that imply? What kind of relationship does that imply? A one of the light. Right? People didn't know God by that name often in the Old Testament. But Jesus came to show us who God is, right? To reveal God to us because we had some misconceptions of God. So Jesus said, our Father. He said, we could call him Abba. <laughs> Mind blower. That, that implies that kind of incredible relationship because he delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, he's not done with the story. He's got a lot more to say and we don't have time to say it. So we'll stop there and we'll pick it up from that point next week and hopefully be able to grasp it. My, my hope is we go through this. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want it to be a drag for you, but I do want it to be an opportunity for you to start to begin to see the point of the psalm is that you can that you can pull from his words the thought. You get what I mean? He's trying to convey his thoughts about God to you. And it's it's poetry. We have to do some work to grasp that, right? It's 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 not just all all the words they they make the beauty of it. But it's the concept that he, that we want to grab and hold on to. So hopefully we'll be able to to work our way through that process. The beauty of it is, like I said, Psalm 17, uh, it's hard, life's hard, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Lord, when are you going to deliver me? Psalm 18 was a deliverance. For you, I don't know which one you're in. You might be in 17. You might be in 18. You might have gone from 17 to 18 back to 17 again. It's okay. That's life. Right? Right? What I tell you, Psalms was about life is hard and God is good. So we're going to move back and forth and through those things, but hopefully we can still grab a hold of those truths and allow those truths to, uh, to transform us so that we're like Him.